0: Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please
1: note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes.
0: Vision? What do you know about my vision? My vision would turn your world upside down, tear us under your illusions and send the sanctuary of your own ignorance crashing down around you. Now ask yourself, Are you really ready to see that vision?
1: Very Bad Wizard. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, Harvey Weinstein, your boy, has taken an indefinite leave from Miramax after 20 years of sexual harassment cover-ups, including Ashley Judd's alleging Weinstein asked her to watch him while he took a shower. Would you watch me while I took a shower?
0: Um... There's probably some amount of money in which the answer would be yes. Um, no, but... not money, just friendship. <laughs> I mean, I do have a Nest camera installed in your bathroom, but it's it's usually, uh, you know, it's just to <laughs> to watch me take a shit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly um, uh, the, the bath the bath time is an incidental sort of. Fringe benefit? Uh, No, it's weird because taking a shower is not. I mean, I know that you can make shower taking look sexy because certainly plenty of people have done that. Can Harvey Weinstein make shower taking (laughs) (laughs) look sexy? Like like the reality of grooming oneself is that it's never, it's never really attractive. Like you got to get in the crevices. Like I don't want to see Harvey Weinstein getting in like the little folds between his ball, like (laughs) screw. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, I, like, I, I don't that. think Ashley Judd was saying that she. Well, this was something that she wanted to do. No, but he has some weird, like,
0: like there's something he want that I'm that? not. Yeah, that's what. Like, what is the turn on for him? Like, he's like, what? You know, watch how I always start at the top and work my way to the bottom, or, or you know, like, <laughs> 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 look how, how I the? leave
1: the conditioner in for for two <laughs> minutes, so that my hair becomes soft.
0: <laughs> Look how the, I always use the loofah front to back. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's just not... If I'm going to pay somebody to watch me do something, um, it like taking a shower would be pretty low on that list. I yeah. would actually say that
1: I would, if they offered, say no. It's not even like... Uh, really low on the priority list Of what I want somebody to do I just actively don't want them to do it
0: Yeah but you know Miramax was a powerhouse Like what if you could have been you know In Pulp Fiction Like in exchange for pretending that you enjoyed Watching Harvey Weinstein <laughs> No
1: no no I mean <laughs> like if somebody Like if I was in charge of Miramax
0: Oh if you were the Harvey If I the was the
1: Harvey and Ashley Judd said Can I watch you take
0: a se- shower I would say no that's okay Okay <laughs> Like, I do, I, I, that's right. That's yeah. right. Like, I, yeah, I would feel like that was a miscalibrated question. I'd be like, what you, who Who are you and why do you think that this is appealing to me? And then, and who are you? <laughs> you don't know who Ashley Judd is? Yeah. I think since she have a sister and a mom, she has a sister and a mom, right? She, <laughs> she does. Yes. Um, what it, this is like, not to get too serious, but why, you know, it's sad that it takes, so long for you know to hear like the story is like okay so and so was sexually harassing people i'm not you know unfortunately i'm not surprised but to hear that it was like 20 years of harassment it's like what the fuck is like wrong with the system that 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 we're just hearing about this now like how much because this like the hollywood is a fucked up place i think like i do we just have they always been like in the movies just like really 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 good at covering everything up
1: one thing i recommend i think i recommended this in a newsletter patreon newsletter one time is there's a it's 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 called you must remember this and it's a podcast about old hollywood Like 40s, 30s, 40s and Uh 50s um, movie stars and the scandals and all the uh, just how Hollywood worked in those days. And it is it's crazy the amount of just sexual perversion and harassment and just and drugs and it's like I think Hollywood has been like that forever it's not like it started in the 60s and 70s and it's not like it ended after the 60s and the right. 70s so like it's when people have that much power and they're kind of maybe it's something about their creative energies right. or something like that
0: I mean yeah, it's an industry fueled by you know beauty and youth and like the you know, yeah. old men with the money and you know it's sort of it's like it's like grad school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: The the Weinstein things like it it had like elements of like that reminded me of some of the bigger philosophy scandals that it was kind of half pathetic and half Abhorrent, like yeah, you know, like the it wasn't excite. It wasn't like the sex scandals like with Judy Garland or you know the, the glamorous sca- sex scandals
0: from your childhood. I actually don't know if
1: Judy saying. Garland was in one, so I shouldn't say that. But like the, the, the it's not the uh, you must remember the this kind like of scandal. the
0: Tin Man from the Wizard of Oz really was like <laughs> fucking with her through the, throughout the whole shoot. You can sort of see in her face every time he talks. Um, uh, yeah, I I guess uh, hopefully like well, the good thing is that we're hearing about this stuff, but it it really is. I may not um, have a heart, in- but I have a dick. <laughs> it's really hard to. <laughs> um, yeah, no. I, I hopefully this does some good in like exposure, but it seems like wherever there's power in old men. But you're right; it's the like I think the embarrassment is the the weird sort of. Um, there's a stereotype of the man in power as being like really dominant. And what you hear in a lot of these cases is just how vulnerable and, and just weak these men sort of present themselves in any attempt at getting attention from who they're attracted to. Like it's it really is pathetic. Before we get to our opening topic, on today's episode, we're going to talk about emotions, what they are. Uh, how we can tell what they are, how how we divide up the emotional world. In particular, we'll be talking about the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett, a psychologist slash cognitive neuroscientist, and her view of emotion, as well as Robert, as Solomon. Robert Solomon's view. Yeah, Bob Solomon.
1: So Paul Bloom just recently won a a big
0: award. I want a picture of Paul Bloom, so it was a million dollar award. I want a picture of him with his pinky in his mouth. So, so <laughs> one million dollar. He's also
1: sporting like a beard like like it's I could the, see Paul Bloom asking one of us to watch him take a shower
0: like <laughs> before, before too long. Paul, I did not say that. (laughs) You know, sometimes people have a hard time figuring out which one of our fucked up voices is which one. Um, That was Tamler Summers. (laughs) I was going to merely take the opportunity to say congratulations on that award. Um, I'm very, very proud of you, if that's an emotion I'm allowed to feel. Uh, He received the 2017 Klaus Jacobs Award um, for his research into the origins, nature, and development of children's moral thought. And in Zurich... There will be a a mini conference in his honor, and I luckily get to fly out to Zurich and to hang out with Paul Bloom, really to decide what to do with that million dollars. Like
1: my first thought was that he just won a million dollars; so they were just writing him a yeah. million dollar check.
0: Like do do with do what thou wilt. Like- yeah, I mean like
1: like uh the the those genius grants from uh
0: right the macarthur awards
1: the macarthur awards or the nobel prize or whatever they don't tell you what to do with the money they just say here you go but it's not that right it is for pursuing more research is that that's my
0: my understanding is that it is for research it's a it's a research prize so probably go through through you know yale university and and it like a grant it would be like a grant which does, does really change it. Like I would crumble under the pressure of having to figure out how to spend a million dollars for my research. <laughs> like, I don't know what I would do. Uh, I, if it were like the MacArthur Genius Award, I was starting to tell you earlier, a good friend of mine, Matt Knock, who's a professor at Harvard who studies uh, suicide and and self-harm. Uh, he, he won one of those MacArthur Genius Awards. And I, I immediately told him like, I can only assume that it's gonna be, you know, you're gonna have really big rims and like a a cocaine party at your house. Yeah. And 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 then I thought to myself, and that's why I will never win the MacArthur Award. I would be getting like a big gold chain, like old school rapper style. <laughs> be like, you know what got me this motherfucker? What are
1: you talking McC- about? You'll have all that high quality cocaine to like get work done.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Exactly.
1: <laughs> I hope you're listening out there, MacArthur. Genius MacArthur Grant. Foundation. Yeah, MacArthur. <laughs> uh,
0: no, yeah. So it has to be a million dollars spent in, in in maybe. Does he maybe get at he least a stipend of some sort? Right, like he must get
1: something just to like.
0: I don't know. Have, but a, we good wanna time. have a When we have him on next, which I think yeah. should be soon, uh, we can ask him if we, all of his plans if we can get him. You know. If oh, you think he's too big for us now? He might um, be. With that, With his David Letterman beard. Um, (laughs) He's becoming a recluse. Paul, are you saving your fingernails and urine? Saving his fingernails and urine? Yeah, you know, like going, like the, uh, uh, like, what's his name? The aviator who went kind of crazy. Oh, yeah. Howard Hughes. (laughs) Right. Howard Hughes. Is he
1: Howard hughes on us? (laughs) You must remember this has some stories about Howard Hughes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is he? Uh. Anyway, so anyway,
1: so when I saw that, I was very proud of Paul and couldn't happen to a better person. Um, Exactly. But I also thought of your thing. I associate it with both of you, but and especially Paul, maybe uh, about every time a Star Trek guy goes into one of those teleporters or transporters. What are they called? Yeah. Transporter transporters that they're actually just killing them. They're just committing suicide. And then just a new person is created that looks like them and has their memories. Both of you in previous podcasts have been adamant that that's the case and have used colorful language to describe what's happening.
0: You know, it is it is a holocaust, right? Millions of people getting killed but but it is a Holocaust that leaves the same number of Jews at the end. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> every time one is killed, an identical replica is left in its place. But, you know, but, but I, I can't believe that you don't catch this intuition. I mean, Paul described it well in that episode where he says... You know, it's like literally if you want to know what's going on, they're playing a little trick on you. They're sort of like having this cool little dissolve edit, right, as as you disappear and then you appear on the planet. But really what they should do is put a gun to your head, pull the trigger, remove the body and incinerate it, and then create a new version of you on the planet because that is on one account of what's going on. That is what's going on. So I was talking
1: to my friend Dan Weiner, not to be confused with somebody who wants people to watch him take showers and he agrees with you guys he says yes i I," he catches that intuition and then it occurred to me that i think this about not just him but you both of you you and paul as well that i don't think you really believe this i think if you really believed it in the true sense of belief, then you would never watch Star Trek because it would be like watching Schindler's List over and over again or or (laughs) Shoah or something like that. You would would feel sick and devastated every time one of those people went into a transporter. And then when they reemerged, it's like you don't have any real attachment to that person. So like there's not that interesting,
0: you know, to see what happens to them. So I'm I'm very like I'm I'm almost proud of you for not saying you, you what you're not saying is how can you watch it given that you believe this you're saying I don't think you believe it because you do watch it because which you do is watch a, it per, because it is. It, 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 you are engaging in a particular kind of conceptual analysis about what believe means (laughs) that you usually would, would quickly lose your patience over. Um, So I was worried about this. (laughs) Like this is probably committing me to like internalism
1: or externalism about belief or something like that. And I don't want any, like I don't want to be associated (laughs) with that, but, but continue. Continue.
0: It's a, it's a very, very good question. Tamler. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) jeez. So unlike watching Schindler's list over and over again, which people can do, i suppose um it like i'm not I am not mourning the real de- you know it's not reflecting a true event that is happening um and so so my emotional reaction wouldn't be the same um but uh two the you you haven't even asked me whether I do feel distressed and I actually do. <laughs> When I watch Star Trek, every single fucking time somebody uses the transporter, I think to myself, you know, they're just killing themselves and the person at the other end is like none the wiser. I believe that you think that,
1: but I don't think that you, (laughs) I believe that you think those thoughts, but I don't believe, I don't think you really believe it.
0: I mean, that's, it's such a weird question for somebody who likes movies so much because Like all, all I'm doing is suspending my disbelief, right? So that that there is continuity. That's all I like. All I'm doing is engaging, and they have stated in their the rules of their universe that this is the same person, right? And so they everybody treats them as such, and like nobody's mourning the death of anybody. So so I unreflectively go along with the story, but upon reflection, I'm always I'm always bothered by this. So okay, wait. Yeah. That's
1: that so that's if if you want that then you would agree that you don't believe that when they get into in this world when they get into that transporter that they are really killing themselves. You believe that if someone built a transporter in real life and they then they themselves. went into it and were reconstituted
0: then I mean, it's the same thing as, like, uh, so my good friend, Suveen Mathadu, who's a, who's one of my best friends since fifth grade and yet ha- has yet to listen to one episode of our podcast. He uh, is a materials engineer, and he's a nerd about science and physics. And going to watch a movie with him that has special effects, um, especially ones that involve explosions and materials like that that shatter in a pretty he uh he becomes sort of like very difficult to deal with because he's always pointing out like when you shoot somebody they know, like even with a shotgun they don't jump back 10 feet right like that's not how it works like they would just there would be a thud and they would fall over and in that same way like if you ask me do i believe in physics I, I believe that they are wrong to dis- to portray the events as they are occurring, but it would be really disruptive if what it meant to believe that the rules of physics are the way that they are, that every single time I saw that, I, saw that, I would have to be like Savine and say, like, well, this clearly is, like, a problem. No,
1: no, no, but th- that's different because shotgun blasts exist in real life, whereas they don't exist in teleportation doesn't exist in real
0: life. Right, but if teleportation works in the way that it does for them right like i don't need really to know whether or not it's possible with our current physics like if if it works as they say it works it is a conceptual truth that they are killing people <laughs> a conceptual <laughs> truth that they are that's killing that's right so then
1: this is we this is what i think is a more accurate and precise and you know like i'm <laughs> very into precision account of what you think you believe actually that in star trek when Kirk goes into the transporter, that is still Kirk when he comes out of the transporter. That's what you believe in Star Trek. But if that were, if we were to invent a transporter and Dave Pizarro got it into one, Dave Pizarro, the same Dave Pizarro, wouldn't have come out of it.
0: Right. So, what I, I, you're close to what I believe, which is sometimes I let them have that and I say, okay perhaps the transporter isn't as they have described it but it's actually doing something else that preserves identity and believe it or not there's like, like an airplane yeah, but through the exactly the, yeah. they, they shoot them they shoot the and sometimes it's described that way and there is a star trek technical guide <laughs> that actually tries to get around this because how have because, i missed that <laughs> i really don't know but uh, uh, so, so I will, I, you know, I sort of let them, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sometimes suspend my disbelief in, in, in the, the method of saying they have actually developed a technology that gets around this problem. They just have not stated it very well to our audience. But sometimes I'm like, actually, they're really deluded and living in a world where they think that they're continuous entities and all that's happening is like, I feel like sorry for them for having... Like, because there are some episodes where people refuse to use the transporters and I'm like, damn right. That's right. Like, they know what's up. Like, <laughs> Do they ever bring this problem
1: up? This issue? Are, like, is anyone there, go like, no, fuck, no, I'm not getting in the transporter because like,
0: then I'll, that will kill me. Usually they don't get in the transporter because of other reasons. They don't directly address this. But this is but it's probably yeah, I have to suspend that. It's true. It, it, it does bother me. Yeah. I mean, we describe
1: it differently because you're an internalist and I'm an externalist or I'm an externalist and you're an internalist. (laughs) (laughs) But I think you just don't you don't suspend your disbelief. You just don't believe it in this context. And you would believe it in other contexts, but you don't believe it in this context.
0: It, that could be that could very well be and i'm not even going to argue it because i'm just i'm just so happy that you're making this distinction and 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 that it matters to you <laughs>
1: more conceptual analysis to come i guess as we talk about lisa feldman barrett's view of the emotions bob solomon's view of the emotions there are clearly some conceptual debates lurking with i mean yes uh, indisputably <laughs> there are some conceptual analysis style debates working uh, you
0: know lurking in the background there i can't wait to talk to this new tamler new new conceptual tamler about i it. must have
1: must have gone through a transporter <laughs> <laughs> like, <It's> fucked <laughs> up it's fucked up your pattern <laughs> uh. maybe my shower is a transporter <laughs> Just tying it all together. This is what professionals do. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this point in the podcast, we like to thank all the people, the growing number of people who contact us, who get in touch with us, who criticize us, who thank us, (laughs) um, and who support us. To get in touch with us, the best way is to email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You could also follow us on Twitter at Tamler at peas and at very bad wizards you can go onto our facebook page where there is almost always a lively and intelligent discussion of each of our episodes and i think the reddit is picking up a little bit i just yeah. checked it out it seems to be uh picking up a little bit so that would be yeah. another good place to discuss some of the topics that that we're discussing you can support us in more tangible ways by going to our support page at verybadwizards.com there you'll find three different ways of supporting us you can give us a one-time donation on paypal you can click on the amazon link there and then shop as you normally would And finally, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash verybadwizards. You can support us at a number of different levels, and there are little perks for for each level. We are so grateful for all of our supporters. I can't tell you how much it means to us that you're willing to write to us and, and to support us financially. It keeps us doing what we're doing.
0: Yep. Thanks. Thanks to all. Oh, and your beats? is uh it's almost ready to go almost ready to go uh, we have uh, it ch- It should hopefully hopefully within the next week or two so the the third beat collection um and for those people who are patreon supporters at that level who get it i will repost all of them um so that you can find it easily um but yeah it's a fun little side project for me
1: one thing when we get emails sometimes <laughs> we are corrected sometimes we are alerted to a mistake that we made. So this is from the Department of Corrections. Well, both of us were very... Well, we were unimpressed with this article about children's stories from last episode. Children don't learn moral lessons as well when the characters are animals versus when the characters are human. When describing the study that they ran... I said that it was a neutral story, which I sort of assumed, even though I had actually read the methodology, there was a subset of the methodology where they I forget what it was called, but but I, I somehow missed this. Uh so I thought, well, how you know, since most animal stories you can't just substitute humans in, they must have just created a new story. But in fact, they did take a story that was written about animals. Uh, originally, which is called How Little Raccoon Learned to Share or something. How (laughs) Mr. Raccoon... I don't know. How Some (laughs) Raccoon Learned to Share. Then they photoshopped... So this is an existing story about a raccoon who learned to share, and they photoshopped into it the human beings. I actually do think, like, I, I got into this... A little bit of a debate with the listener who, who talked to me about this. I do think it makes the study a little bit more interesting. I think he thinks it it makes the study more impressive, or at least it, it makes the their conclusions a little more plausible. I still don't think that the conclusions are much more plausible, just because I think that any... Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to get this guy's name. It's uh, Frank. Frank, yes. He, he didn't give a lesson, yeah. Um, because any any story that you can just easily substitute, or it would even make sense to substitute a human for an animal, it just can't be that good a story. It can't be that good <laughs> an animal story. So it, I, I think it would say something that they picked that story, and I don't believe that it's representative of, of most animal stories and certainly good animal stories but that said I made the mistake and it's kind of an interesting result that they were able to get kids to share stickers
0: more yeah and and I think that f- Frank Frank's points I, I think you know it's it's easy to be down on studies and like to criticize the methodology I, I think that that for me this this is not really anything. Sp- that was specific to to that particular paper that made it kind of unsatisfying in fact i think the study was interesting and and done done as well as most studies are done my only problem is always with the the conclusions and i think that's what <clears throat> sort of the broad conclusions, but Frank's point is that they used a real story. So at the very least we can say that, you know, there is some sort of external validity to what they did. Like this is a story out in the wild and they changed it from animals to humans and it did have this particular effect. Uh, I still think that that we could be as a field more nuanced with how we conclude um, what we conclude from these findings but they did how,
1: how we generalize
0: yeah. them how like we generalize, i think specifically
1: yeah. right like the that's that's my issue like that if if their conclusion was just oh that's interesting you there's a certain kind of animal story where if you change it with humans it might have more and and, and it's a story specifically designed to get kids to do a specific you know perform specific moral behavior you switch it to humans and it'll be a little more effective but really that's not that's not how it was reported and that's not in the in the actual paper that's not what their conclusions were and
0: in the introductions um which brings us to the general point that this is hard psychology is hard yeah <laughs> and, and one of the hardest things I think in all psychology, maybe I'm biased because it's an area that I study is emotions. So that's, I, that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. What are emotions? And there's so much to talk about. I'm going to try my best to keep it constrained, but, but, um, we assign for ourselves two articles that we link to on our show notes that we always, we always try to link to the papers in our show notes. And they're, they're from very, I'd say very different traditions in the study of emotion. Um, but, uh, but I think the broad question for me, that's interesting really is like, what are emotions? Like what, what does it mean to say that something is an emotion? And, and there are really these, these two papers represent two different ways of trying to answer that question. There's the philosopher, Robert Solomon, Bob Solomon, who he passed away a few years ago, right? He's, yeah more than a few, yeah. I think, but yeah, yeah. Um, a philosopher of emotion who who tackles this from sort of an he's this is as close as we've gotten to reading existentialism <laughs> officially for this for, for an episode, which I would like to do yeah, yeah, I would do. It's sort of a conceptual analysis of what it means to, what it means when we say we're having an emotion. Um, and why sort of some of the ways in which people talk about what emotions are don't really fit the criteria of what, of how we use that term. Um, and uh, and then a sort of on the other side of the spectrum, uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's work on the neuroscience of emotion, um, broadly just trying to answer the question from an empirical perspective, like does it make sense to say this is anger, this is fear, this is surprise, and what is the evidence that we can actually distinguish that and that it's not it's not merely wordplay and I, and i think that even though these two these two approaches on the face of it aren't really you know it doesn't seem like they're talking to each other i think that they're actually there's there's some consistency in the way that they want to treat emotions um or describe emotions so i guess like i'll, I'll give a little bit of background i i um about sort of where at least the, the Feldman Barrett approach is coming from. What I, I take it that what's not at debate is that we all say that we are feeling these kinds of emotions. We have labels for them. Our labels are meaningful. They seem to be tracking something. If I tell Tamler that I'm angry at him, he knows what I mean. Um, and so there, there is a category that we might call anger that, that we, we, to encapsulate a certain kind of response. The, the question then of how to study emotion starts at, at Darwin. He wrote this a wonderful little book called um, The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animal, where he was saying, look, that what we call the emotions are actually these uh, responses. That are common to all human beings, and that are probably present in animals. And here is one way to carve up the emotional world, like the spectrum of emotions, and that is to look at facial and postural expressions and use that as sort of a marker of the natural kinds. So, so he was the first, if not one, or one of the first, if not the first, to point out that that expressions of say anger and fear. Um, look strikingly similar no matter who's making them. And uh, this this tradition was deeply influential in the study of emotion, picked up most famously by Ekman, who did really good cross-cultural research, trying to use facial expression as the marker for, for how to carve up the emotional world, right? So, so he said, look, it just seems to be the case that if we analyze muscle by muscle, uh, facial expressions when people are reacting to things that are emotional, um, we can see commonalities. It's not what, right? we have like a, a lot of facial muscles, and like there could be a lot of different combinations, but it turns out that there are there are fewer than you might think. They all sort of coalesce into what he originally came to six basic emotions, and he said you can you can see that this is a universal by taking pictures of people feeling fear in different cultures and showing those pictures to everybody else and asking people what emotion it is through a variety of methods. This story of, of basic emotion is, I think, the story that has made its way into the literature and into popular culture, I think, the most. It's often combined with an evolutionary account that says organisms that experienced fear at the sight of a predator or at heights or whatever the case may be. Um, th- they had a whole series of physiological reactions that kicked in. And so emotions, basic emotions or discrete emotions were seen as these little sort of packets of, of responses that contain a sort of a behavior like a motivation to act in a certain way they respond reliably to the same elicitors right the same causes in the environment um they have a uh, very sort of specific set of physiological responses so fear is the fight or flight response it, it they happen Sick to have
1: too right like and this right you know one of our heroes bob frank right like <laughs> yeah the passions yeah. within reason account
0: and you know, and part of the Bob Frank account is that these these expressions are hard to fake. Um, what yep. they're showing is a ge- sort of a genuine reaction. Um, so when when you are angry and I see your anger face, I know that it, you are in fact feeling angry, um, and so I don't. Fu- I'm less likely to fuck with you. So people who who show that sincere signal of anger are less likely to get fucked with, and therefore it persists in the population. And facial expressions were the natural place to look at first because because they're easy to observe and so they became kind of the gold standard for measuring emotion so even Pollockman nowadays he you know he trains people to be able to read emotional expression by looking at the activation of of every little muscle in the face and um and he claims that you can even if you're well trained you can even see these micro expressions when people are kind of feeling an emotion but they don't want to show it um, you can still see little glimpses of like a disgust face, like when you're talking to somebody, Tamler, and you just like they or the thoughts of you in a shower or whatever the, <laughs> the
1: case maybe. The, the actual <laughs> image before them of me in a shower, right? <laughs> I make my I make my dog Omar watch me while I'm in the shower. <laughs> Actually, I don't have to make him. He just comes in. He, he just loves shower. it. Dogs are
0: dirty. Yeah, dogs are dogs are so dirty.
1: Bad. Uh, They're naughty.
0: Also. <laughs> <laughs> summarize what Lisa Feldman Barrett is arguing against here because I think a lot of the work and what she says in the op-ed and in, in the, the articles that she's written and in, in her most recent book which we will also link to is to say that no matter where you look like these claims that there are basic universal emotions that can be detected she says well look it turns out the facial data is sloppier than anybody wants to admit. And that is, it's not quite clear that everybody from every culture recognizes these things. Moreover, people make way more, there's way more variability in the kinds of emotion face that you make when you're feeling anger. Not everybody makes that, pr- you know. In fact, if you think about when you see somebody who's angry, they kind of rarely look like that stereotypical, like, Arr! Like, nobody really does that right. except for, like, bad, bad actors. Right. right? Um, like in <laughs> cartoons. Right. Right. And she says, even if there is something that we call the anger face, the context really matters. And one of my favorite studies is when she shows people a picture of a politician making sort of a prototypical anger face, according to the basic emotion theorists, um, out of context. So, So you just show the face and people are like, oh, yeah, that guy's angry. But when you include the context, which is a bunch, the politician is at a rally and there are a bunch of people behind him cheering, then it becomes clear that the face that he's making is one of sort of just getting fired up and excited. And so she says, we're drastically overestimating how much the face encodes these distinctions. And so she goes sort of systematically across the various criteria that people have used to divide up emotions into these basic, these sort of discrete categories. Um, so you can look at, like I said, facial signals, you can look at, uh, specific physiological response patterns. So you could say, do people's, uh, physiological, uh, responses differ when they're angry versus when they're afraid versus when they're disgusted. And it turns out that's, there's really little evidence that that's the case, right? Even within disgust, sometimes you heart I, I gets
1: need to ask faster. a clarificatory question yeah. here. Kids, so I have a little pithy quote from her where she says you can experience anger with or without a spike in blood pressure. You can experience fear with or without a change in the amygdala. The brain region tagged as fear. And as you say, she goes through this with uh, Mm -hmm. all the emotions. How do they determine... So, like, you can experience <laughs> yeah. anger with or without a spike in blood pressure. How do they know that the person is really angry, you know?
0: This is not a pithy question. You've gone to the... No, to I, the, the very... quote was pithy. Oh, yeah, sorry. The, the Yeah, you've gone to the very heart of the problem, which is that if you take what Lisa Feldman Barrett and her colleagues are saying, it's unclear that you could tell... Like in the absence of a positive claim as to like how you can tell that this is just a different kind of anger, it's unclear what evidence you could ever use to make that claim to say that, no, look, when people are feeling angry, sometimes their heart rate goes up and sometimes it goes down. Right. Well, you could say, well, there's no such thing as anger. That is, we use the word and and it could be that what she's saying is when people say they're feeling angry, it's not just She's not saying they're feeling angry, but their physiological responses and neurological patterns are different. It's that there is no such thing as angry. That is. Wait. <laughs> that so there is. So,
1: but but, I, I I mean I'm not even. I'm not even asking this right now as an objection, although I have an objection yeah. in mind along these lines. I'm just asking when she says things like this, and I read a bunch of, she, she's all over, like, we'll post a lot of links, but there are a lot of great interviews where she lays out her, yeah. her view and, in, in detail. And at every, in every one of the interviews, or most of them, at least you have something like this, where she says that we experience these emotions but there's no corresponding physiological marker for them. She has some reason for the view of how she determines. So what is, that? Yeah. is it? Self-report? Is it?
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's usually just self-report. You say you're feeling anger, right? Um, okay. And that, uh, if you use that, or the, the problem is I don't think that she, she, she doesn't want to use that as a gold standard either. So, so there's a way in which she's using this phrase, like when you feel anger, you might be actually having very different bodily states and very different neurological signals or whatever, um, or facial responses. Um, There's a way in which she is trying to say something different, that the word anger is defined, it's it's heavily contextual and cultural. And so, um, so we are, we have some meaning as a, as a culture as a person we have some meaning to the word anger so when we say that we're feeling anger we're not saying anything deeper than uh, I am feeling one of the versions of those things that we label as anger and so for her it could be then that you are you know you can imagine that there is a kind of anger that is uh, rage because you found out that somebody has harmed your child and you call that one thing and then you have um Annoyance because at a committee meeting, somebody made a super passive aggressive remark about you. And we say anger in both of those cases. And so she takes that, I think, as the starting point, say, like, were you angry? Yes. Well, it turns out. Okay, that's what I I wanted to figure out. So just
1: so it is a self-report based like I'm just trying to get a sense of the experiments that she ran to to like support the claims that she's making about. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I want to be as fair as possible. It's not as bad as just, uh, asking people if they're feeling angry and then measuring them. Um, because there could be reasons why self-report would be bad. Right. Or you're just not good at language or something like that. Yeah. Um, usually there is some attempt at inducing an emotion with a reliable manipulation of anger. So, um, but isn't her whole
1: it. point that there isn't that? <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. So, but here's what. So, so I think disgust is a very easy way to 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 um, talk about this. So I show you a really gross picture. You know, whatever, like vomit. Yeah, on the floor of a of a bathroom. Harvey um, Weinstein taking a shit. <laughs> Harvey Weinstein cleaning his balls, so systematically, right. front right. to back. <laughs> um, <laughs> you don't need to get that vivid <laughs> in our descriptions. So you. Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, it's important to be methodologically very, <laughs> yeah. very sound. So you have a bunch of, uh, of different methods that are, that could be used. So usually we show people a whole set of pictures or you can use an odor or whatever. Um, our claim is that everybody might say that they're disgusted reliably from these manipulate manipulations. Um, and, but that there is no real Common denominator to all of those instances, even when you're using the same stimuli as a as an induction, um, right? I like take fMRI, right? So you show a bunch of people a bunch of disgusting things, or tell them a bunch of disgusting things, and you measure their brain activation. Well, it turns out that you never reliably get the same. If you look across studies, it's not like one area of the brain that's constantly firing. People often say the insula, but it turns out that that it's that's not the case. The thing that I think you've been describing at at
1: in detail and and well is what she calls like the classical view of the emotions, yeah. which she traces yeah. back all the way to Plato, and just this idea that these emotions are just things that happen to us, and um, and yeah. and that's what she wants to push back against, A, that they happen to us, and B, that they're the same for everybody, and that that they have the same physiological markers, or at least share physiological markers in common. But, like, is that really a view—the way she portrays it is, this is what almost everybody has believed until now. Everybody feels fear— under these circumstances, and that manifests itself physiologically in the
0: same way. I so I, I think that actually she's it's it's not wrong to characterize this as the dominant view. With okay. like with with even just the standard account of fear, even the, the account that I give my intro site class, there is this a clear evolved selected for response that has these sort of causes and these consequences. The amygdala is heavily implicated in this. The nuanced views in philosophy, I think, are are they're much more nuanced views in the philosophy of emotion than in the psychology of emotion. This is something that I was talking to you about, sort of off channel, which is psychologists are keen on finding the emotion, the the markers of these emotions, so that they can study them objectively. So Actually, it's adults. like
1: a methodological uh, framework or something exactly, that you can now yeah. work within,
0: yeah. Yeah. And she's blowing that up. She is. So she's, she's trying to blow it up. And it, so I think it's, it's useful to talk about what, what this positive claim is. Yeah. Um, because she's not saying that there are no emotions or that there are no physiological responses. What she's saying is that the best way to describe the, the, the emotional system is, is a sort of, uh, sort of like the nervous system's rough way of motivating the organism on a dimensional, right, what they call the circumplex model where you can have sort of positive and negative feelings and arousing versus non-arousing physiological states. And she says our emotion words are just labels we put on some space in this dimensional structure. I always use the analogy of of a color wheel. So you can imagine a color wheel that has all of the colors on it and you draw circles around certain certain colors and you call it red. But some people might draw smaller circles and they call something burgundy and they call something hot, you know, hot pink or whatever, Uh, you know, but you might have like there are cultures, for instance, that that have the same word to cover the blue and green parts of the spectrum. Right. And so so they don't distinguish between the two. And I think that's not a bad way of, of describing some of the emotions that we feel like. I think we might somebody might say, like, I'm angry and they use the word angry to mean everything from mild annoyance that the their vending machine ate their dollar to the rage of before your kid gets harmed, or your you, you you cover a wide spectrum. Whereas other people might say, "I'm annoyed, I'm exasperated, I'm outraged," and, right? And so she thinks that we've been reifying these emotion categories by but, using but the labels. This is where I'm where
1: I'm sort of wondering or worrying that this is a straw man. I don't think anybody thought that everybody meant the same thing when they were saying, <laughs> right. "I'm angry," right? Like nobody thought that there weren't different degrees and uh, degrees and shades of anger and that the anger of somebody saying something at a faculty meeting is different than the anger if somebody bullies right. your kid or something like okay. nobody okay, would Okay so that- let me ask
0: you wh- let me ask you then is there a common cuz they also don't mean that there could there's nothing in common between those
1: um I don't know like think of happiness so um, happiness can mean a thousand different things and we know that it can mean yeah. a thousand different things right like happy you just went to the gym and you're feeling good good about you know like and then happy in your marriage, happy in your um, professional life happy, happy for somebody like I, I don't think we're deceived. Certainly about like uh, a feeling like or emotion like happiness that that in a, a unified way of describing the experiences and like, yeah.
0: Well, I think I mean, but but here I mean, there's still a problem that I think that your your way of describing it. There are clear cases where something isn't happiness. Right. So if you were like, yeah, if there's a sort of meaningful common denominator to all the times we use the word happy. Right. Is there something that is actually. But that
1: isn't that the positive-negative affect kind of uh, it, distinction that she also agrees
0: is there. It could be, but then so when you say when when the the positive case, we just have we have fewer categories for the positive case, but but in the negative case, um, say fear and anger, it seems to me that we are in a lay at uh, least use of the terms that there is some sort of family re- resemblance to all of the things we call fear our late use of the term fear or embarrassment or something is capturing some common common underpinnings or else it would be so hard to communicate emotions.
1: Yeah, it depends also how sort of specific the emotion that we're talking about is. Like anger, I do think we have really broad understanding of. We understand that it's an umbrella term. That can refer to a lot of different states. Lay people we're not committed to any specific physiological view of it.
0: No, we're not. You know, we get tripped up, though, because the emotion language is so strong that it feels as if, well, if there are these, if the word anger is common to all of these situations, then it seems as if we ought to find that commonality and measure it in people. Right. So it doesn't need to be that it's physiological. It could be a feature of the eliciting situations that some people say, well, you're, you know, you're misguided to, to try to look in, in physiological response. What it means to be angry is that it, it's a judgment of blame that somebody has un, unjustly done something to you. And that's what we're going to find across instances of anger. Right and that's maybe this can segue us into the solomon view, which is before we segue in is the classical is the classical view that she's
1: fighting against maybe not one that is widely shared, except among psychologists and emotion theorists within science who are just desperate to have some sort of methodologically just a way of of proceeding in their research right but it's not something that is shared by people who don't have who aren't motivated to investigate emotions in a systematic way within the sciences so like that that because that would be one thing like it would still be really impressive what she's doing which is saying stop making this mistake just so
0: you can forward your methodological program but you know, it depends what you call the standard view. If all you, if, if what we mean by the standard view is that people think there are different emotions, that, that anger and fear, that people do have a sense that these are actual categories that are, that are, tra- that are tracking some real phenomenological difference and that uh, there are clear cases in which you would say, well, a culture that, that jumps up and down and smiles and says that they're angry, like that, that must be a mistranslation. But so I, that's I one that
1: crosses ha- the positive negative affect spectrum. So that wouldn't be a good example of like a mismatch between the lay view and the, and her view, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. So so somebody you know sees a a putrid putrid meat and starts gagging and they say you know I'm I'm angry. I'm angry. Yeah. Um. I th- right. I think I I th- I think it might be a mistake that we do this, but I think we do treat these as real as real distinct families of experience um, so, uh, so yeah, while I agree fair. with you that we're yeah. pretty subtle about it we, you know because one of the things I, uh, that I really like about about uh, uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's work is that is that even if some view like that is right that, that there is some actual difference some even if there are broadly it makes sense to call fear and anger and discuss different things we're so wrapped up in our language terms for these emotions that we might be missing out on a lot of the deeper psychology, not just in that we are making categories that that don't really exist, but that in fact other people might have categories that meaningfully exists that we are completely unaware of. And I think we're reifying with our language. We're just, we're as psychologists, we're in danger of really taking these lay terms from our own language and thinking that we're going to find the se- the secret sauce by like,
1: by even just taking for granted those terms you're closing off.
0: Exactly. Uh, yeah. The potential, the potential to find distinctions that, that are actually there. Um,
1: what I find interesting you know, not from a methodological scientific perspective, but like from an individual perspective, is this idea that seems right to me that learning new words for uh, an emotion actually helps us understand what's going on, like what we're feeling. So, you know, from our perspective, we have this phenomenological feeling Um, you know, it takes, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. And sometimes we understand what the the causes of it. And sometimes we don't like if we had a word and that, you know, and then we talked about it and had a, or at least some sort of concept for it, we would actually understand what we're feeling a lot better. And it might even help us control it or regulate it, um, better. That's something that I think she, believes is an implication of her view and something that I think is pretty plausible.
0: I, yeah, I love that. I'm all, I'm on board fully with that because, um, and I think it ties nicely actually to what Solomon is saying about what emotions are. Um, you could, you could imagine creatures that only had, you know, humans that lived in a society where their language only had words for Broadly, sort of bad and broadly good. You know, this is sort of a stereotypical view of men's dealing with their emotions, right? Where you're like, yeah, are you? What do you feel? I don't know, bad, right? And by bad, they mean you know, <laughs> like it, like it could be anything. And you're like, but I don't like. <laughs> right. Were you were Go you ahead. feeling shame or or uh, were you feeling contempt at your peers? Were you feel you know? And and I think that there is good reason to to think that we can be much better at dealing with emotions by carving up our emotional vocabulary in a way that's pragmatic like that it is it's a pragmatic way in the same way that if you are somebody who is a designer it really is good for you to have a bunch of different words for colors because it's pragmatic for you to communicate that you meant whatever you know burgundy number 128 and not like cherry number 164 or whatever right right um, yep. And so it's it's not it's not that it's they have secret access to the color spectrum, like I can tell the difference between those two colors if you put it in front of me. But I would call them both red because right. I don't ha- I don't have to use a different word.
1: But right? also like, gotta, like you probably like there are various uh, shades of red that i probably would be able to distinguish better if i had language for it and since you would at i least don't
0: notice it right yeah. you would attend to it notice yeah. it right
1: i just exactly. won't notice the difference right now partly because partly because i don't have the language to even make sense of that so
0: like when when pressed if you showed the two colors we could distinguish between the two it's just that you would never attend to that difference and you would never encode it in your memory and you would you know, you wouldn't use it as a distinguishing feature of two two different people who are wearing those shirts, like when you you know, because it's just not available to you as a category, even even if it is available to you perceptually. But so by so, analogy,
1: like if I'm feeling anger, for this to be useful for a person, the way it's useful for a graphic designer, it would have to be something that affects you, um, yeah. and so that you could actually like. Better understand it and better regulate it. Oh, like I, I think I'm angry at my wife right now, but actually I'm just angry about something at work, or I'm angry, angry about the Red Sox, or i mean, you know, like. Or whatever.
0: maybe you're feeling bad and you call it anger because it feels it feels like the times in which you've been angry, but what? But upon upon reflection, you realize that what it is is just uh, something like shame. You're angry at yourself, and it, you know, it could be that in you know. C- small fishing village cultures that have existed for a thousand years, there is a particular word about thinking that you were going to get a lot of fish that day and you didn't. Right. right? And that's a particular kind of frustration slash anger. And they use that word and, and it could, it, there's no need, I guess that one of the, the main points that I see this making is there is no need to think that you can't study emotions if they're not capturing a distinct physiological or neurological or facial pattern, right? It doesn't have to be a deep natural kind for it to actually be uh, interesting, true, measurable and meaningful to say that they, they are... When they say I'm feeling, you know, blark, they mean this. And it turns out that that's a very useful thing so when you come home People don't think that you just you know you've just found out your wife was cheating on you and that's what you're feeling. No, you just had a shitty day, like thinking fish that in. you were about to catch fish. Um, and but and, and I want to say there's a, one of my favorite studies that that Lisa has done is she uses this phenomenon that you're probably familiar with. Most people are is when you um, okay. So so the view is that language is actually causing us to categorize things in a different way. So when I say Uh, that that face is demonstrating anger, Um, I am relying on the fact that my language has a word for anger. And if it weren't for that, I wouldn't actually call that face an angry face. So what she did was she tried to strip the word, the emotion words, of their meaning. And the way that she did it was by having people repeat the word. And so there is this really cool effect that if you say a word enough times in a row... you you ever get that weird feeling that like the word you don't know what it means yeah (laughs) stop making sense yeah so you just say anger 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 anger, until like the word doesn't and when people do that they're actually worse at categorizing angry faces (laughs) right so there is like one of the one of the only cases in which I've seen somebody do an experimental manipulation demonstrating the role of language categories for like the perception of emotion that's
1: funny Yeah. yeah That really just shows how necessary our language is towards making sense of uh, what it is that we're seeing. Okay. Right. I want to get to the Solomon view, cognitivist theories of emotions. It's I'm sure it's a debate that I have cavalierly dismissed as being just terminological, but was more interested in... In this context, and then reading the Solomon article that you sent me. So the basic idea is that emotions can be distinguished from feelings or moods in the sense that emotions are always about something. So it just doesn't make sense to say, I'm angry. Full stop. You have to be angry about something. And in fact, you know, he takes a fairly strong view. And Martha Nussbaum has taken this view that when you're truly feeling angry, you are making a judgment and often a moral judgment. So when you're angry, what you are doing, like that actual emotion, if it's true that you are angry, you are judging something in a negative way um, and often a morally negative way. So the example he keeps using is about somebody taking uh, your car. You know, right. like that, it makes sense to say, I'm angry that Joe took my car without asking. It doesn't make sense to just say, I'm angry, right? right. It's uh, then you haven't, we don't know whether you're angry or not because we don't know what the intentional object of your anger is. That's the view that anger has a anger has a judgment and just knowing that, that that you're making a judgment can help you if you understand and we often don't it's often not transparent to us what the judgment is about or what the cause of the anger is but if we know that then we can subject it to critical scrutiny we can examine well is this judgment a plausible one or an implausible one and then that will actually you know make us not angry anymore <laughs> like if we yeah. just come to conclusion oh I guess I did tell Joe that he could take my car so it's not like he actually stole it like he right. he just kind of did what I said he could do but I wasn't thinking that he would do it today when I needed it or something like that then you're not angry anymore because you've now explicitly repudiated the judgment that your anger was entailing or was just that was partly const- const- constitutive of your anger So, um, so that's interesting, and I see as consonant with the Lisa Feldman Barrett view. That would explain why there's so many kinds of anger, and that it would be so variable across cultures is because people people are angry about different things, right? Like their right. anger is directed at all sorts of different things, and those are going to be completely different. Those are going kind to of correspond to different feelings, different subjective phenomenologies.
0: That's right, and I, and I I really think that this, you know, when this this paper was was what. 1970 something 77 this is where i think that some, that it really is the case that the s- philosophy of emotion has something like the psychology of emotion really is making philosophical assumptions that it doesn't know that it's making often right this is not true right. sure of everybody but that this distinction is so it, solomon makes the distinction so clearly to me that when we say we're angry Right. If, if you are going to rely on me saying that I'm angry as a way to assess where I'm angry, like it, it totally makes sense that it is not a physiological feeling. Right. Like, so it, it could be that, like, I am pissed at you because I think that you stole $100 from me and I have some physiological reaction, right, that's preparing me to like beat your ass or something. Um, and then I find out that you are, that you, you never did. And I just feel really bad. And I'm no longer angry at you. But my physiological responsiveness might take a little bit to calm down, right? So now I have the same physiological response, um, but my judgment about the situation is completely different. And I don't think anybody on this very common sense view upon reflection, I don't think anybody would say, no, no, you're still angry. Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that if there is a set of conditions that we can use to categorize emotion, it will be this sort of appraisal that is what kinds of judgments are, do do we use that give rise to these things that we call anger or fear or whatever the case may be. Now, of course, for fear, there is often a physiological response, but, but not necessarily for anxiety or dread. And so, so the fact that we use words like anxiety, dread, stress, fear, Um, in all of these ways, to me, is a way that we're encoding for the different kinds of judgments that we've made about our environment that are giving rise to a particular set of feelings. And looking for those differences in physiology seems like it's missing something very obvious that is, no, like in some really important way, what an emotion is, is an appraisal of what my current situation is. But
1: it it also might be a way of distinguishing between, and I think this is how Solomon means it, between emotions and moods. So sometimes you can be depressed without uh, knowing why you're depressed and without the depression being about something, right? It's just you're depressed because you're hungover, you know, or you're just depressed because you have clinical depression. That might be distinct like like literally like a distinct concept and i can't believe i'm speaking in these terms but (laughs) uh, from being sad which might actually be like have to have some sort of object about what you're sad about like i'm sad about the fact that i seem to be engaging in conceptual analysis (laughs) i'm sad that i'm watching
0: you doing that e-cigarette thing now (laughs) like i'm sad it's really the words shame envy these are the words (laughs) um uh, yeah no and well i mean to be fair to emotion theorists, they've distinguished between mood and emotion for for a while on that very in that very way like it's you can really be so so you could later on today think to yourself why? Like I'm in a bad mood. Like, and I've been in a bad mood. Why am I in a bad mood? And you say, Oh, it's because I remember that I was engaging in conceptual analysis. And then, and then that all of a sudden turns to anger. Not because there's some magical shift in your brain chemistry, right? Other than the thought changed. Right. But like, no, you actually like, oh yeah, I am pissed that I engaged in conceptual analysis. Like that's the, now. Now it's no longer mood. It's the object is is is. Is present and you're making a judgment, um, but like you say, you could have you could actually be in a bad mood because you ate something that made you sick and and you're just kind of feeling shitty. And,
1: and I see that as kind of analogous to what she's saying, which is learning new words or learning new concepts, where you're just learning in a more fine grained way what like how to make sense of what it is that you're feeling.
0: Right. Yep. Or and I think that that's yeah. that's where like the 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 you. <sighs> I guess one of the things that I, I see in reading these two papers together is that the view that language is encoding for uh, very different kinds of, of situations that give rise to whatever these emotional responses are. And the view that these are judge fundamentally judgments about the world around you doesn't have to lapse into any sort of arbitrariness about what emotions are. Like, um, I think that one of the fears that people who believe in this sort of basic, universal, discrete emotion view, w- one of the reasons they hold on to it is they, want to, they don't want to give in to the thought that, well, that means anybody can label anything, anything, and we don't even know, right? There are patterns. I just think the patterns are not... The patterns are in the judgments, and as you say, like, it actually could be that when you have a greater, more fine-grained distinctions about the kind of judgments that are leading you to feel a kind of anger, you come, you have a new word, or your culture teaches you a new word, and it encodes for a particular space of thinking and feeling that is, it's it's true. Like, there's nothing not true that you are feeling for verklempt. Is that how you say it? <laughs> a little verklempt. Yeah. Right? You, that is a thing that people can feel, even if they don't have the word for it. But once you have the word for it, you just carve that space, and now you can use it as a pragmatic way of communicating.
1: And now you identify it better, and like you identify you're right? aware of and,
0: it more, right? And this is what, like, this all I think it must be completely obvious to therapists. So uh, I, I that, was, <laughs> of right? Like, right. This is like the point of therapy is to, uh, you know. You're just feeling kind of shitty. Like, let's talk about that. Let's put a label on it. Let's see what the causes were that made you feel that way. And now let's see in a very Solomon kind of way, let's see if it actually follows that you should make that judgment about the world around you and that if you make that judgment that it it entails that conclusion, right? So, So if I'm feeling bitter because I haven't gotten recognized by my field, I think it makes sense for a therapist to say... Have you really not gotten recognized? Like, is it, you know? And and so I can think about those things. I can say, oh, you're right. That's the wrong sort of judgment. I am, and that is to me why I love this this view, because not because I just want to believe that we have some sort of you know free choice about what emotions we're experiencing, but that we have a lot more control that we might think, given the view that just they're just triggered by environmental stimuli
1: and that talking about it reflecting about it like really so you know like i have uh, somebody close to me right now is going through a difficult time right um and feeling very negatively towards a person that's close to her but it's in a totally not new way it's like it's very hard to try to like make sense of what it it sucks she knows that Right. And just talking about it, examining all the different surrounding factors can help to sort of because I think it, it, it there must be some additional meta unpleasantness about feeling bad, like real strong negative affect without actually having the sort of language to describe it to others and to yourself and even a way of fully understanding it and talking about it and trying to like explore both like what judgments are you making and also you know are there any words that you know that we can use to help sort of identify the the how fine-grained it is the the um that's actually like a helpful thing
0: yeah totally and there are i mean the way i see it is like like the way that you described that it's like, uh, you know, when you're feeling stressed out because you have a lot to do, sometimes it helps to write down the things that you have to do. Right. That hasn't gotten anything done, but what it has done, it is, it has given you sort of the causes of your current emotion in a way that you can kind of tackle it a little bit easier. Right. And, and uh, that's at least my perhaps metaphorical way of understanding what's happening When I have the right words and the right sort of understanding of the judgments that that I made about the situation that are giving rise to a a particular feeling. Um,
1: Yeah, I like uh, that. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And it it, it takes the edge off the feeling,
0: too. Okay,
1: now, like I get this 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 it doesn't get the things done it doesn't eliminate the feeling but it takes the edge off it a little bit or the sort of the extra meta unpleasantness of it
0: yeah and i think that one of the things that that people talk about when they talk about sort of um I got kind of mindfulness approach to emotion is that so you can really say like you know I I am angry because whatever David said that thing to me that it really got under my skin and that is why I'm angry and at that point when you've identified it and and you even endorse it as the appropriate judgment then you can just sort of say okay it's it's okay to be angry like I'm it's like yeah right you're not having this weird sort of meta guilt about whether you should be feeling this right that's the thing yeah. it's the meta right. guilt yeah totally like, it's like well, why am i feeling this shitty like i shouldn't be feeling this either i don't deserve to feel this way or in fact i'm being too judgmental being or something fair
1: like- yeah like, yeah it's a kind yeah. now you can feel wholeheartedly angry or wholeheartedly <laughs> stressed like yeah. oh wait shit that's actually too much for like for me to right. accomplish in the next two right. days, you know.
0: And the, and the yeah. irony is that like maybe it doesn't make the emotion go away. In some cases it might make the emotion go away. In other cases it just might intensify it. Um, but then at least you can have, I don't know, you have like a, a, a strategy there. Like you have, <laughs> right. you can just sit and accept it, you know.
1: It's true. Sometimes you reflect on these things and you get more pissed off. You're like, it's worse <laughs> than you thought, you know, like, <laughs> oh, fuck. I like. I didn't even think about like that. That that he also did that to me.
0: Yeah, and this is actually something really interesting <laughs> about emotions, be, because you know, it, one of the things that we know is like that it, when you're feeling angry or sad or whatever, it activates sort of all of these associated thoughts, right? So, so there is, um, so when you're feeling shitty about something you do, you're more likely to notice when people seem disappointed in you. Right. Like right. you're more likely to know uh, like all of these things sort of spiral in, in, in feeding the emotion. And so I think it's right. really important to, to nip it sort of in the bud and, and to explicitly say, why am I feeling this way? Because or else I think it's much easier for it to spiral. And
1: that's the thing that mindfulness practice. And I know that there's a podcast with Lisa Feldman Barrett and Robert Wright. And I know that she's interested in this, too, but I don't know the details I think one thing that mindfulness is training people to do is just to be aware, OK, like I'm in a depressed, sad mood right now. So then if somebody says something that hurts me, I will at least be aware I'm not going to yeah. not be – but I'll at least be aware that the way I'm interpreting what that person says is colored by the fact that I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling like – so you just have – if you're mindful, you know, the when you're meditating or whatever, you're supposed to sort of really – be a connoisseur of what it is that you're feeling, what it is that you're sensing, what it is that you're experiencing. And that's like a practice you know, they call it so that you then can have that understanding in your interactions with other people. And that will help you better understand, okay, well maybe that person didn't mean right. Like I'm taking it as a, like a really cutting remark about how worthless I am. But that's probably more me and less them. Or right. if you're if, if you were mindful of that you're in a great mood and they said that, then you'll know, oh, no, they actually meant it in a really cutting, like, <laughs> shitty way. Yeah. But you're still probably better able to deal with it, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. So Bob Solomon has, I think, a nice—in right, his, 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 his language, emotions are judgments— I don't think that takes away from the fact that emotions often are accompanied by all these other things like facial expressions or physiological reactions, but for him, like it makes sense to call emotions judgments themselves. And so he says, if emotions are judgments and can be quote unquote diffused and also instigated by considerations of other judgments, it is clear how our emotions are in a sense our doing and how we are responsible for them. And that's the step that I think that maybe we can end with, which is. Does this introduce a different way of thinking about our responsibility for the kinds of emotions we experience? I I don't know that understanding emotions to be judgments or what we might even call just like beliefs about the world, right? Like judgment is a very active way of of calling it. But I think in a lot of cases, what he's just saying is like, there are certain beliefs you have about the world. Like John stole my car and it is the belief that John stole your car that is making you angry he wants to say um, that we're responsible for that. This view gives us control over our emotions when we realize that they are judgments. But I don't know that just by like by dint of it being a judgment, I have much more control over it. Like if it is the case that you stole my car, I am angry. I, I mean, I could sort of, make other judgments to try to diminish like, well, you know, cars aren't that important or whatever, but, uh, but,
1: but he's not saying we, this is how I understand it, which would make your objection like not appropriate It's he's not saying that like we have sufficient control that when an emotion is an appropriate emotion, we can still turn it off. I think what he's saying is we have responsibility Um, to make sure that the emotion that we're feeling is an appropriate emotion. So it's not something that's completely out of our control, whether we have anger. Our responsibility is to get it to the point where the anger is...
0: Is based on it's a corresponding to a judgment. true judgment. Yeah. Right. So he says now if you criticize my anger at John who stole his car by maintaining that he has not wronged me, you may conclude that my anger is unreasonable, unfair, and perhaps unbecoming. But if you should convince me that John has not wronged me, I do not simply conclude that my anger is unreasonable, unfair, or unbecoming. I cease to be angry. And I, I guess in in that sense, right, w- you have to determine whether the judgment you're making is the the appropriate one in some cases a factual one or the the right one to make under these circumstances uh, then of course then your anger would change but i i read his the tone of this as saying that somehow that somehow this gives us more control like so suppose that it does
1: i agree it it gives you more control but not total control and not the kind of control that will take an appropriate emotion and just turn it off.
0: Right. I mean, it could give you, if you could convince yourself genuinely that, that, that you're wrong, right? If you could engage in self-deception, but how is it different from say, like a very, very basic perceptual view of emotion? So, so, you know, I see bear bear directly causes fear in me without a cognitive step that is often taken to be the opposite of this cognitive view of emotion. That is, there is very little thought that goes into, you know, I see vomit, I gag. It's tracking something and it's tracking something in a way that I could say is appropriate. And unless that, that vomit ceases to be there, I will, I will still feel disgust. Um, And if the vomit ceases to be there, I won't feel disgust. But uh, isn't that, I mean, is how different is the amount of control I have over that than, than just the fact of the matter, the judgments that I make, John actually stole my car.
1: I I think he would make a distinction, you know, between our responsibility for feeling disgust and our responsibility for feeling angry. And I think what he would say is, so take the example that the husband who is angry about something that happened at work comes home and interprets that as anger at his wife for, you know, not doing the dishes or leaving the dishes right. around. And so. Very,
0: 1973. That's all yeah. right, we here.
1: <laughs> so one view of that situation is, oh, well, you know, he can't help it he loves me it's just that you know he can't control this feeling of anger that he has because his boss is a dick to him another view might be no like he has the ability to really reflect on why he's angry and to subject that to some sort of critical scrutiny am i really angry at my wife here or is it my boss who is belittling me in front of all the other co-workers. And that's the thing that's getting me really pissed off, right? So, like, that's, that's like a responsibility that we have when we're feeling something like anger. And he makes the further claim that when you do that, you can actually eliminate the feeling. And this happens sometimes. Like, I get into fights with uh, my wife all the time where it's like, oh, Fuck. I I was not, like, I thought I was angry at her, like, but I wasn't really, like, it was just, I was pissed off about something else, and then, like, I got triggered by something stupid that I don't... Like in my moments of reflection, believe is something that should get me mad at all.
0: She should have given you a trigger warning. <laughs> right. I blame her. I blame her. Uh, so, <laughs> like, I
1: think that's the idea. And whereas with disgust, you can reflect about it. You probably have a tiny bit of control over whether you, you know, like if you really, th- somebody who's like a medical student who's initially disgusted by corpses probably is just going through repeated exposure and through various forms of reflection is going to eventually not be as disgusted but we just probably have much less control like i buy that we have more control over anger than than we do over disgust
0: right so in fact some people don't even like to call disgust a true emotion they can want to call it more like a reflex um so yeah so i I agree with you i think that's the reasonable take I, i mean i it's still and he points out it's not that you can simply stop feeling anger it's not like you have ultimate control like that um but what what this perspective does give you is, and in, in a way, it makes you more responsible for these kinds of emotions, because once you realize that they are a judgment, they're not they're not even the result for him. They're not even the result of the judgment. They are, in fact, The judgment. It's constitutive, as as you said. Um, So he says, I must be in appropriate circumstances to pass judgment, have some evidence, know something of what the judgment is about. Of course, one can make judgments rashly with minimal evidence and with superficial knowledge of what the judgment is about. Emotions we can now see are rash judgments, something I do but in haste. Um, And so then he goes on to say that you can be responsible for the way in which you make your judgments which is directly being responsible for the emotions that you feel exactly um, like and and yeah. you could think
1: of other areas like and you know this is a huge liter- literature and philosophy but responsibility for belief or responsibility for judgment yeah so like if I believe that all NFL players should stand for the national anthem. Like I have some responsibility for that belief and subjecting it to the proper amount of critical scrutiny. And if I've done that to an appropriate level, then it's fine. But if I haven't and I could, then... So I think he thinks that it's analogous to something like that. Our anger, which often people feel as, like nobody thinks that my judgment that NFL players should stand for the national anthem is something that just happens to me, right? Right. Like people will talk about it in terms of I make that judgment. But with anger, people do say, oh, I just got it. It just happened to me that I got angry. And in describing it that way, it does sort of exonerate responsibility-wise the...
0: Right so right I saw red right like it, yeah. yeah it just so happens that the reason is because I'm super homophobic and I saw a gay person that made me mad and I attacked him but like I couldn't help like the anger overcame me and yeah. what's all meant to say is like that anger is a judgment that you're making and that judgment yeah. is one that upon reflection you shouldn't make I will like I, I want to say the last thing and, and not get into it too much but this is a perfectly fine theory I think for human emotion Um but it misses a lot of, I think, what emotion theorists in psychology really care about and those people who, who might have a, a particular functional view of emotions and what they do, which is that emotions are like the, the benefit they often provide is that of bypassing cognitive processes in a way that would make us more likely to survive so the fact that uh, with very little reflection you see a, a a rattlesnake and you jump back um is is a benefit it's a it's a feature not a bug it's right. it's it's the fact that it doesn't require too much judgment is the only thing that made them so useful for our ancestors and for other mammals and perhaps you know other non- Mammals And, and um, anger too, I'm sure that's true. And anger too, right? And yeah. That's the that, right to get to the Bob Frank view is there's something about the irrationality of it that, that made it functional. And as soon um, as
1: you start thinking about it, you've removed the functionality.
0: <laughs> right. So, so it may just be that when it comes to discussing the psychology of human emotions, our ability to make these judgments has fundamentally changed the nature of emotion compared to animals that don't have the ability to sort of ponder their propositional beliefs and make judgments accordingly
1: i also just want to clarify like there's a kind of anger where it's just immediate yelling right yeah um that is something and i don't know what solomon would say about this but that is something that seems different to me than the kind of stewing anger that would sort of continue so there is a kind of anger you know, whether this is for evolutionary reasons or not, where it really it's it just doesn't like it's not something you reflect on. Like maybe yeah. if you do mindfulness. Same
0: with fear. I mean, yeah, fear, same with fear. it has, right. to, be, it has yeah. to be like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think that's why uh, that's why I think that that this doesn't undermine the advantage of emotion. In that it can easily bypass too much cognitive processing, but what it does do is, I th- I think that he's approaching toward th- toward the end of this article, he's approaching a kind of virtue virtue uh, theory uh, of what it means. Right? He's so yeah. even if you are the kind of person who gets who sees red every time you see, I don't know, somebody i your partner with lust as to quote him he said i could take any number of positive steps to change what i believe in what judgments i hold and tend to make and that to me is sort of the 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 power that the this view unlocks
1: Uh, and very uh, like a stoic view um and tying it back to lisa feldman barrett it would help if you were able to individuate the that emotion from you know, the kind of other angry emotion that might be tied to different and more appropriate judgments than somebody looking at your wife for one extra second or something like right. that, you know? Right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, then another, we solved emotion. <laughs> we solved. What's
0: What's next? I I feel, you know, hopefully... Hopefully the field recognizes this or else I'll be pissed.
1: We solved race <laughs> or relations and uh,
0: we solved like personal identity. We yeah. solved the mystery of David Lynch's Mulholland drive. There you go.
1: By the way, see the new Twin Peaks, everybody. It's uh, so good. Speaking of uh, like somebody who has color, like a, a whole new way of understanding color, a whole new color vocabulary.
0: Right. You're, you're like all fuchsia in this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mauve. What's mauve? But
1: I don't know. Fuchsia? I don't know any of it's those words. I don't like. I don't know what fuchsia is. Like, is that m- like more? Is that green? Is it purple? I don't know.
0: Yeah.
1: I kind of feel like it's more towards blue than than <laughs> <It's> red, <just laughs> but I don't know for sure.
0: Fuchsia is definitely in the reddish. It spe- is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> what was the other uh, one you we, said? Mauve. Yeah. I'll mauve. Gonna, <laughs> like
1: is that bluish?
0: Sea foam. <laughs> You know sea foam is. That's uh, like when you jerk off. <laughs> when you maybe when you do <laughs> Oh, there's Moe. No, I don't That's the I nice thing is you is. could just Google for Move and, and it will <laughs> Sea <foam laughs> is green. Move is this Mauve is like pink and brown had a baby. Not not to be Is that racist? Not to be racist. <laughs> <laughs> Pink, pink and brown, perfectly allowed to have a baby if they can. <laughs> yeah. So long as they get blood tested first. <laughs> For k <Tay-Sex. laughs> uh, All right. All right.
1: Join us next time uh, on Very Bad Wizard. I'm oh. more brains than you have. Pay no attention to that man. Anybody can have a brain.
0: You're a very bad man.
1: I'm a very good man. Just a very bad wizard.